whether you can harvest the fact that the person concerned in some way or other had views which are unacceptable. The remarkable thing is that before people started guarding their most private and intimate thoughts, particularly if they were at some cultural or educational level in the last 20 years after the advent of what was called political correctness, vast range of people from Marx onwards have rendered extraordinarily incorrect statements privately and in diaries and in written records. And Eliot was no different. His most notorious publication, which was never republished, was uh, a book based upon the transcript of a lecture, I think in 1934-1935, After Strange Gods, an analysis of contemporary heresy. Now, this book argued for an organic society with the fewest number of foreigners. It was largely done from what you might call a Christian national perspective, given his conversion to high church Anglicanism. Elliot remained high church and semi-Anglo-Catholic by adoption, but as a man, psychologically, he remained a Puritan, and he always had a strong streak of Puritanical New England diffidence, which in some ways probably prevented him from leaving the area that we could call ultra-conservatism. There's a website in the United States called Countercurrents, and I've written an essay in the last couple of weeks on it called T.S. Eliot, on that site, called T.S. Eliot, Ultra-Conservative Dandy. And there's a degree to which this is what I consider Eliot to be. The most important element in Eliot's life isn't accusations of incorrectness about this or other matter made by Julius or whomsoever else, but is the quasi-nihilism of the early poetry, which in maybe poetically is the best poetry, in comparison to the later belief and the metaphysical plunge, or the re-plunging back into a considered form of identity, and the identitarian politics that inevitably goes along with that. Now, Eliot worked in a bank for a short period, uh, between 1917 and 1925. After that, worked for Faber and Faber in Camden. He married uh, Vivian in 1915. And one of the other areas where Eliot has been attacked posthumously is his relationship with his first wife, Vivian Haywood. There was a well-known play called Tom Live in 1984, and this was followed up by a film of the same play, Tom and Live again, on screen in 1994. Uh, this is part of a concerted feminist attack on various writers who attained some prominence in the 20th century. The idea that they were bad to their spouses, that they drove them insane, that they were responsible, if not for sort of wife beating and that sort of thing. We're dealing with people at a certain cultural level after all, but the moral and linguistic equivalent of saying. This is particularly true of Ted Hughes and his uh, early poetic wife, Sylvia Plath, who committed suicide, of course. And there have been extraordinary attempts, including a very cat-handed and misguided one, to probably dig up the Plath grave by feminist devotees, largely from the United States. This was part of the extremist second wave of feminism which is very much part of the 1970s. You notice that academics feed on writers in two main ways. One is just general biographical and academic approaches within the tolerated banks of opinion, academically and otherwise. The other is this attempt to suggest that there are dark, willful, abstracted, incorrect, pseudo-satanic elements to them that need to be revealed, such as a belief in an organic Western society with as few foreigners as possible, the belief that not all Semitic influence is for the good of the general population, the belief that men and women are genetically and biologically different and 
psychologically and emotionally so and in some ways need to be treated differently um, in relation to legal conduct. Now, Eliot's poetry has this enormous bifurcation between his pre-conversion pre experience and post-conversion experience. The early poems, such as Prufrock and Other Observations in 1917 and Thereafter, and The Wasteland, one of the most famous poems of the 20th century, and The Hollow Men um, in the mid-1920s, very much despair at life, at existence, don't just incarnate the disillusionment of the post-Great War generation, which suffered a catastrophic loss of faith in relation to Western traditions and structures at that time. It wasn't just a generational clash between those that had fought in the war and those that had ordered the bloodbath. It was a general and conceptual retreat from many hitherto adopted Western attitudes. There's an interesting parallelism between Eliot and what we might call an amateur poet, Enoch Powell, in that Powell had a prior belief system before his conversion, straight reconversion, to high church Anglicanism, and that was Nietzscheanism, which strongly influenced Powell when he was a younger man. Powell wrote poetry throughout his life, uh, and volumes from it are available on the volumes of it are available on the internet. Now, when I say a reconversion, I'm working on the premise that before 1950, certainly before 1960, we were living in a largely Christian society, at least in terms of its self-conception. Thereafter, I make the judgment that we are beginning to live, and now most definitely do live, in a post-Christian society. So when I talk about reconversion, when somebody recommits to adoption of metaphysics such as Christianity, revealed Christianity, of one of the major departments, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, or one of the major sections and subsections within that, they are basically going back to prior Western structures, maybe not the structures I would choose in an ideal world, but they are going back to that which exists before them. Tradition was very important for Eliot, who had another career as a literary critic and another career as a playwright, particularly um, in and around the Second War. Eliot always sought a social role for the artist, which clashes slightly with the nihilism and despair and inner despondency of perhaps the greatest verse which he wrote early on in his career. Now, well, I'll just read a few things uh, which I have with me in the Favour and Favour edition of the Collective Poems, 1909 to 1962. Um, Eliot, of course, worked for this firm from 1925 onwards, and apart from a few outtakes as a professor at Harvard, wherein he largely lost contact with Vivian, partly deliberately. Vivian was the first wife who could decline into mental illness and live the last years, nine years of her life, from the mid to late 30s to about 1948, I think, or maybe 47, in an insane asylum in Hackney, in State Newington, the Northumberland Institute. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent, to lead you to an overwhelming question, oh, do not ask what is it, let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, the yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leaf, 
and seeing that it was soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a taste and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Now, this was written 1917 and onwards, before really Pound became involved in his poeticisation. The Wasteland, which followed in 1922, was heavily influenced by Pound and was edited by him. There's this quote in, in Latin and Greek at the beginning of the poem when he basically talks about being uh, honoured by the greater craftsman because Pound certainly imagised the poem and cut it down and made it more sheer and not less complex, but probably starker than it might otherwise have been. The Wasteland is probably the greatest expression of despair in the 20th century and despair underlines quite a lot of Western artistic attitudes in the 20th century. It's interesting to notice, metaphysically, in a high philosophical sense, why there has been such a current of despair in Western art in the 20th century. If, as Pound said, artists and writers of some quality, we're talking about after their death at any rate, um, are the antennae of the species, there is something in the ether of contemporary modernity, perhaps post-modernity, which is uniquely despondent for those who care most about civilization and where they believe it's going. So if you have the idea that artistic individuals are insightful at a higher level than the general, general mass of the population, it's inevitable that they will imbibe many of the energies, pro and con, that are fulfilling the presence and the absence of the metaphysical space. Don't forget the religion that people were taught to believe in for the better part of one and a half to two thousand years has largely collapsed during this period. Western identity has largely collapsed during this period. And if faith and identity go, and if knowledge in, what, in terms of what one once was feeds through into the present, which determines what one will be, you can understand why many writers and artists have taken the perhaps easy consolation of despair Although never riding roughshod in sort of a left nihilist terrains like Beckett, Sartre and others of the existential school in the middle of the 20th century, someone like Elliot incarnated many of their attitudes earlier on prior to his conversion or reconversion from Unitarianism to Anglicanism. I think it's extraordinarily important actually that, that Elliot made a metaphysical choice. Because it's a choice that everyone has to make in this life in relation to the ultimate answers. We've heard political talks earlier on this uh, afternoon, but politics can only go so far in answering what life is about, particularly as one gets towards the phase of life when death begins to approach. Religion ultimately gave the consolatory answers to what life's meaning could be for most people. In the 20th century, religion for thinking and reasonably sensitive people has been replaced by art. And it's no accident, to my mind, that despair has become the currency of a large amount of the creative superstructure of Western thinking. People can say what use of it is these considerable talents, whatever one thinks of individual artists and writers. Um, 
retreating to the possibility of despair. Isn't it the job of artists to ennoble, to glorify, to build up, to create structures that can be looked up to? And this is why hierarchical elitism is so important, because if there is nothing above you, then there is nothing to look forward to, there is nothing to transcend to, there is nothing to abide by that is beyond and outside one's often quite trivial concerns. The mass of people today live completely buried in their trivial concerns, and most forms of culture are forms of entertainment. Eliot represented one of the last generations where the more classical and restorationist attitudes towards culture prevailed. After the conversion to Christianity, in poems like the Aerial Poems and Ash Wednesday and the Four Quartets, for which he was largely awarded the Nobel Prize in 1948, Eliot's diction and his poetry changes quite considerably, becomes more causal, becomes more melodic, becomes more um, semi-romantic, although he resisted romanticism in poetic diction. Eliot's a classicist. Eliot's a New England Puritan in a very complicated way. There's a poetic neuroticism to him, particularly in the early verse, but there's also a deep New England Puritanism, but never Philistinism, because you're dealing with a highly complex individual. Born in St. Louis, Missouri, he once said that his heart was British, but his uh, sensibility and intellect was American, and that Anglo-American hybrid, or hybridization, very much fulfills the nature of his vision. Towards the end of his life, it became increasingly important, even in the politics, if one can call it such, of the Anglican Church. He was asked in the late 1940s by the Archbishop of Canterbury to serve on panels that discussed the theology, particularly of the more Anglo-Catholic chapter of the Church. And he also was uh, involved in 1963 in revisions of the Psalter, in, in collaboration with C.S. Lewis on committees to re-examine church doctrine, morals, and textual exegesis. So Eliot threw himself into Christianity and threw himself into the idea that a Christian community should be what this country had to be in order to reach a redemptive view of itself. This may not be to everyone's taste today, but there is a degree to which this mattering to Eliot, to Eliot that something should matter, was crucial to his later development as a poet and a playwright. Eliot had a parallel career as a literary critic, and he developed several important critical ideas from a highly conservative and individual standpoint, which have stood the test of time and have had great influence. He influenced new criticism in the middle of the 20th century, a movement that was characterized by I.A. Richard in the United States, and F.R. Leavis here on this side of the channel, the Atlantic, and was characterized very much by developments at Cambridge University, amongst other places. Now, Eliot's ideas were very much of the vogue that there has to be a response to art and a response to higher things which isn't purely personal. We live in a world where everyone has a subjective response. They like something, they dislike something. They intensely like something, they intensely dislike something. They're completely indifferent to it or whatever else. Eliot developed a concept which he called the objective correlative, whereby that works were not completely evaluated by me likes, me doesn't like sort of vocabularies. This involves the idea that there is a background or a tradition within an artist's conceptuality. In other words, that the, reason, the man who wrote Ariel, the man who wrote uh, Sir the Rock, a uh, collective and collaborationist Christian piece in 1934, was quite different to the man who wrote The Hollow Man and The Wasteland. And yet, the poetic diction of the one and the other is interrelated, and all of them have to be seen as part of a career, part of a progression. Conscious adult life towards death. 
So this idea of a tradition within an oeuvre, rather than just relating to tradition as it comes down to one in relation to the Georgian and post-Anasonian poetry that was written early in his career, and of course against which he was a rebel. In proof of, there is a comparison between the evening and the patient, who's been uh, anaesthetized or etherized, and is lying on a table. Now that was uh, regarded as quite a shocking and incorrect image at that time when Georgian poetry and neo-romantic idealism was the way in which things were configured. There's a nihilism at times to early Eliot, which it comes close to Gottfried Ben and his sort of school, which is associated with the right, not the left. It's important to realize that not all despair in culture is left wing. The left wants to pull down and therefore often adopts an antagonistic attitude towards nearly all prior forms. The more extreme the current of the left, the more extreme becomes the destructive urge. There's even a spiritual dimension to this uh, in occultistic terms, whereby the left represents the destructive and chaotic side that wishes to arrange and extend a remit of chaos prior to the prospect of reconstruction. The idea that destruction is a creative passion. There's an interesting story once about the anarchist Michael McEunion, who was, if you like, the founder of the movement that lies to the left of Marxism and was a rival to the attentions of the extreme left in the 19th century. Don't forget, extreme leftists would have tiny little meetings like this in the 19th century, totally ignored by the general culture, yet their ideas in the 20th century were to dominate much of the hinterland of the planet. Now, Bakunin was, this is from E.H. Carr's biography of Bakunin, once passed a gang of rascals and ruffians who were destroying a house and were burning it to the ground. And he got out of the coach and joined in with the destruction <laughs> and raced about. Don't forget, he's an aristocrat. Raced about putting his cane and ferrule through things and stamping on pictures and throwing things out of windows with the other ruffians who just accepted that he was one of them, that he just joined in. And when uh, the conflagration had ensued and most of the mansion or whatever it was had gone up, Bakunin was asked why he'd done it, and he said, because it's there. That's an ontological prerequisite, a very extreme left-wing attitude. You want to destroy things because they are there. The reason you want to do that isn't pure nihilism, because the back of it is the notion that there's a perfect society which can replace that which is destroyed. The reason why right-wing meetings are, in the past, when they had the numbers, ranked by the extreme left, and almost <coughs> everyone over a certain age in this room has had experience of that, is because they see in their most radical opponents on the other side the germ, and more than the germ, of everything that they most dislike. They see the maximum form of essentialism. They may see the maximum form of the belief in the politics of identity when they believe in the politics of non-identity. This means that people like Eliot, people like Pam, people like Lewis are anathema and always have been to the extreme left that took over much of the academy from the late 1960s. Although, in many ways, one is surprised that Pam and Eliot have not been demonized more. The reason that they haven't been, as I discussed in the Pam lecture last time, is because they're crucial to modernist poetics and the arts in the English language. If you took Pound and Eliot out and basically corralled them in a zone where Lewis has largely, but not exclusively, been left as politically incorrect, as essentialist, as quote-unquote racist, sexist, homophobic, non-philo-Semitic, inegalitarian, hierarchical, religious, 
prior metaphysical and all these things which you're supposed not to be, you wouldn't have much left of Western poetics in the 20th century. That's why they survive, because they can't be taken out. All you can do is essentially throw brickbacks at them from one side of the uh, cultural space. There's a lesson here, and that is that despite the demonizations, particularly of Pound, and to a lesser extent of Elliot, he made peace with the establishment after the war, and partly adjoined it from a radically conservative to ultra-conservative perspective. Elliot never, Elliot's a less sexy person to talk about from the perspective of the people in this room and the traditions that a group like this could be said to feed upon. But that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be looked at. Elliot, if you like, is to the left of Pound and Lewis by quite a considerable way. And yet, in actual fact, he's still to the right of most other tendencies that exist. I think that's just a truthful statement with which he would largely agree. He certainly wrote some poems after the Second War, 1930, 1945, obviously, um, which praise the war and are regarded as a sort of establishmentarian coming home. By that time, he wished to enter the bosom of the Anglican establishment, which until the 1960s was still very culturally important as a guiding post for the accepted and received wisdom of the society. Anglicanism has declined to such a degree, and it's such a dog's breakfast now, uh, that there's a degree to which one can often make the mistake of belittling its importance earlier in the century when the Church of England was a power in the land. Now it's a pathetic, broken-backed organisation of almost no power at all, which is dwindling with every year that passes. It's amazing to think that it once was the metaphysical engine of the English people, and that a considerable part of our people invested quite a degree of talent, power, and moral energy in that particular structure. When things die, they go down quickly. But, to view the thing dialectically, the quicker things go, the more of a space is created for something else to emerge. And something always will emerge. Somebody spoke to me earlier on about this society and its current status. This society is, that we're now living in, under and in, is the hegemon of the liberal vision that has grown up over the last two centuries, in particular over the last 60 to 50 years. We're living in the eye of the storm. Almost all of the values that people in this room hold are inverted in relation to the mass society, and vice versa. This means that we're living through the eye of the tiger and the eye of the storm. Liberalism has never been more powerful in a left liberal, secularized sense. Let's use the term liberalism as a shorthand for all sorts of other terms that could be used. We're now living in the apogee of the sort of ideas that used to meet secretly and semi-masonically at the beginning of the 20th century when small little circles like the Bloomsbury Group who used to meet in and around this area of Bloomsbury, the University District of London University, the Senate House just behind us and so on. A lot of history in this area. These tiny little groups had to almost recognize each other with strange little handshakes and little nods, winks and so on. You have to remember the pressure these people were under psychologically in the 1920s and the 1930s. Everything that they liked was detested by the mainstream. They were in favour of atheism, they were in favour of deimperialisation. They favoured it in a different way because uh, mass immigration hadn't come about then, but they were in favour of various forms of multiculturalism as would have been defined in that era. They were in favour of homosexuality, they were in favour of the decline of the marriage bond, they were in favour of alternative lifestyles and relationships as a norm, they were in favour of drug usage and its 
privatisation, if you like, in terms of the moral space. They're in favour of all of the things which have come to pass, with the possible exception of euthanasia, absence of the death penalty, absence of military service, absence of an organic and collective and coherent vision of the society, a particular type of upper middle class power, maybe, in socio-economic terms, um, a form of radical Keynesianism dominating the social and economic space, which is complicated because all sorts of different groups would have aligned with that sort of idea. And there, although Keynes was a part of the Bloomsbury group, that wasn't their original formulation. But we're living now in an era where all of those ideas are semi-totalitarian. Indeed, they're so pervasive that they're almost totalitarian. Eliot, Pam, Lewis and the others, the men of 1914, which is a long time back now, were living in a last gasp of the society that culturally came to an end in the 1950s. If Eliot dies in the middle 1960s and a stone is put up to him in Westminster Abbey two years after his death, we're living in a society which is the opposite polarity to that which, to that in which he and the others who men of 14 grew up. There's a degree to which if somebody like Eliot, with some of the attitudes which he had, particularly Redmond of the earlier material, was alive now, he would receive no attention at all, or would be retrospectively completely demonized and would be regarded as a demonic influence, both for the Christian conversion and for the right-wing elements in the prior nihilism which exist before it. To turn to him as a literary critic and to deal with certain other areas, Eliot disliked romanticism in art and was essentially a classicist. There is a frigidity to Eliot, there is a prudery in a way, despite the subject matter of some of the early poems. There is um, a New England fastidiousness. It's probably one of the many reasons why he didn't go out beyond the radical conservatism that he believed in quite strenuously. In the wasteland there and in the hollow men, there is the scintilla of a possibility that he's opposed to the Versailles Treaty, which of course uh, is the Woodrow Wilson inspired belief in all nations cooperating, except if they're part of the uh, opposition forces in the 14 to 18 war. And we see in Pound and Eliot's generation the belief that the Western world can revive, that Spengler's doctrine of the decline of the West in 1918 and thereafter need not be fulfilled. Whether they favoured a form of Caesarism to come up from below and rescue the West and its impasse socio-economically in the 1930s, or whether they believed in forms of classical and restorationist conservatism with an existing elite toughening its game and imposing upon a society a vision more congruent with structures in the past, which would have been Eliot's cultural vision, is neither here nor there. But all of them represent, in some ways, the last flower of a particular type of Western intellectuality, the like of which you don't see in the post-war period. In writers and artists who are prominent in the post-war period, John Fowles, J.G. Ballard, these sorts of individuals, Anthony Burgess, with a mild exception in Burgess's case, he wrote Cold Orange and lots of many other things, you do not see the degree of Westernization that you see in Eliot, you see in Pound, you see in Lewis, and you see in some of the others. We're living in a state where the unconscious of the Western world doesn't really have an outlet, except in the artistry of those who in some ways were defeated, were morally defeated by the progress of the 20th century. 
it's quite clear that certain forces of direct Western renewal were defeated in the middle of the 20th century. And we are living in almost all areas of life with the consequences of that. Eliot's retreat into Christianity, if you wish to regard it as such, is his attempt to deal not with that event, which of course comes after it, but with the spiritual malaise that pre-configured it. The purpose of life, the meaning of death, the prospect of family, the tradition out of which we come, all of these are now up for grabs in a world that's changing with its kaleidoscope with extraordinary speed and rapidity. The point about Eliot's later Christian poetry is its stillness and its belief in a centre and its belief in a return to essence. In contemporary theory, which if you do an arts course in a Western university today, you will experience quite a bit head on. All the beliefs that are identity or focused are regarded as essentialist, are regarded as reactionary, are regarded as that which should not be occasion. Anyone who does any course across the arts and the ologies that were referred to earlier on, such as sociology, anthropology, the application of economics to social and personal life, psychology, social psychology, and so on, and the more liberal arts subjects, with the exception of the classics, will come across the fact that belief in the prior identities of the West, belief in the religions of the West, belief in the higher philosophies of the West, most of which, of course, come from the Greeks in one form or another, is anathema. Everyone is taught to be critical, but no one is taught to believe anything. This is why belief and belief in belief is of crucial significance culturally and even anthropologically. When people cease to believe in anything higher and above themselves, they render themselves open to the prospect of slaughter, in my opinion. Therefore, it's very important if there are prior artists in the tradition to go back to the prospect of the existence of identity, even in attenuated forms. Eliot married again towards the end of his life, after the death of his first wife, who clearly went insane. Uh, Eliot suffered from various nervous and psychological problems early in life, but they seem to clear up later in life. There are some who think that the later work is weaker than the earlier work, but that in some ways, as always, is a matter of taste, although Eliot regarded taste as a dubious criterion in terms of cultural analysis. One of the groups that he brought back into prominence was the metaphysical poets, Vaughan, Dunn, Marvell, Thomas, and the others. He wrote about the metaphysicals extensively, just as he wrote about Greek tragedy extensively. He had the idea that the metaphysicals were useful because they pulled together an entire sensibility in earlier British and English literary poetics. This was the idea that you had a unified sensibility, which some people just regard as another name for metaphysics, just as they regard objective correlative and other of Eliot's formulations as a metaphorization for the belief that there are objective standards through which to view culture. Eliot certainly did enter the establishment in his final years. Wyndham Lewis once said of Eliot, he's kicked up around himself a definite and rather smug uh, concept of cult. And there is a degree to which he did enter into the higher reaches of the Anglican establishment and many ways compromised with the uh, outsider's vision of his earlier art. But that's almost inevitable given the fact that he's conservative and given the fact that the society that existed in the 1950s and 1960s viewed from a high Anglican prism 
wasn't so far away from what Eliot thought of as a reasonably tolerable and good society. Eliot regarded himself as an American mentally and British emotionally. He once said, I'm American in my mind and British in my heart. And he was very much part of that Anglo-American generation that viewed this country seamlessly, England, New England, New England, England. Going back to Henry James, there's a whole species of Anglo-Americana that thinks of itself in this way. That sensibility, given the change in American art, life, and letters, congruent largely, but not exclusively, with the demographic changes in the United States, which are enormous, enormous. President Obama's presidency is just symptomatic of the extraordinary changes which have occurred in the United States, which have uh, de-Europeanized it culturally, intellectually, sociologically, and in other ways, to a quite incredible degree. No one who's ever goes to the United States now should doubt what Obama's victory means. It's just a codification. It's just a simplistic statement of the changing nature of the identity of the society. The society that Pound and Lewis, who was born in off the Canadian coast, and spent his first six years in the United States, and Elliot grew up in. That Anglo-Americana has not gone forever, but it exists in a very reduced spectrum. If you look at the art which is produced in the United States now, it bears no relation to the sort of hieratic, puritanical disciplines out of which somebody like Elliot came. Now, is often asked with figures as difficult and abstruse and elitist as Eliot what the point of them is. The point is that they're transcendent figures. The point is that they look upwards. The point of all life is to look upwards at the prospect of something which is above you. Whether you believe God is above you, or you believe some other force is above you, or you believe the gods are above you, or you believe your ancestors are behind and above you, or you believe that the prospect of something else may exist, or you believe in philosoph philosophical verities that give three-dimensional meanings to, to death, to sexuality, and to other things. You've got to look above you. Mosley once talked about endless, varied, and revivified forms getting higher and higher. That's a platonic idea, a neo-platonic idea, of the prospect of an archetype or an idealism that one can only approximate to. These may be, in many ways, highfalutin and airy-fairy judgments. In comparison to the majority of people out there, they are completely meaningless. But they have a deeper and a more archetypal meaning, to my mind. And this is the fact that without such idealism, all you get trapped into is mediocrity and opportunism. Much of the opportunism which has been decried by speakers earlier this afternoon is due to the fact that there is no higher vision there to articulate. It's not just having a hardcore nationalist political view, in my view. There is also no higher vision there. There's no philosophical government there. Metapolitics is the idea that there is something more to politics than the distribution through parallel companies of how British gas operates in a post-privatised world. If you believe that politics is more than that sort of zero-sum game, you have to have some higher metaphysical vision, which is grounded in things like religion or art. This is why our group feels so vulnerable in relation to many other peoples who kept cardinal forms of identity, often very simplistically, but they have kept them. Once a people loses its ability to recognize its own signs, its own semiotic of being, it's finished as a people. Unless things get so bad 
that there is a return to forms of identity by looking at a small vanguard of people who haven't given up on them. In terms of the right, you can have a very low view of right, a sort of low version of right-wing ideas, or you can have a very high version of right-wing ideas. If you have the very high version, you end up speaking almost to yourself. If you have the very low version, you face complete demonization by forces of media power which exist completely against you. I personally think in this moment of maximum difficulty for our way of looking at things, it's important to pitch the level as high as possible partly to, in relation to the pattern that you're going to hand on. Without the belief that men like T.S. Eliot can exist, there will be no future for our people to find us Caucasian people all over the world, particularly around your Saxon ancestry. Because we are all over the world. We're increasingly not here, even though we are here. But we are all over the world. And one of the primary things that we have to do is adopt a worshipful attitude towards our higher creators. I'm not arguing for a surrogate religiosity for culture, but I think in some respect something which mildly approaches it is necessary. If people give up on the highest things that their people as individuals have created, they are opening the space for themselves to be destroyed in the future by people who will not give up on their greatest gifts. Pound, in an extreme moment of disillusionment at the end of the Great War, talked about a botched civilization and an old bitch of a civilization gone for two, and a generation on all sides, that have been, including our own nationality, of course, that have been slaughtered for a few thousand books, for a few old Greek statues. The First World War was reckoned to be the end, was reckoned to be the nadir of nadirs, was reckoned to be the moment when the West came home to itself in the most violent and dispirited ways. No one claimed that they had a great victory after the Great War, who had experienced the industrialization of death that that conflict represented. And yet, within a couple of decades, of course, the Second War, one of the most violent conflicts that's ever convulsed the planet, was itself to break out, followed by atomic weaponry that froze power between the blocks. Now, our role in this group, and in those like it across Europe and North America, is to keep alive the idea of high culture which is aware of itself and aware of where it comes from. Press in France and other groups always try and pitch the level as high as possible. And they've created a space for organizations like the Front National, which in many ways disagrees with them on all sorts of cardinal points. But the point is to create the space for the prospect of metaphysics, for the prospect of higher philosophy for the belief that belief is possible. Our people face the dilemma, of course, that many instinctively don't necessarily want to go back to Christianity, but nothing else appears to be tolerable for them. So we live in this post-Christian void. Eliot had the courage, possibly, of the Puritanism of his New England forebears, and he actually chose belief. How deeply did he believe in the Anglo-Catholic re-immersion that he engaged in from middle life onwards. One doesn't know. Certainly the conversion or reconversion, as I call it, seems to be pretty absolute. There's nothing fundamentalist about his religiosity because it's too fay, too complicated, too nonlinear, too mosaic, too modern, too partial to his own sense of self to be something ridiculously constricting. 
but I feel that the absence of a prior religiosity or a prior philosophy of life, which is congruent with it, is a key affliction for our people. A key affliction. It's something that weakens us, particularly in relation to those that may, in one moment in the future, as in Howard said, come to conflict with us generally about the future of this island. I personally believe that immersion in high culture, even partially, is vitally necessary to keep yourself morally and intellectually clean for the future. Now, Eliot's plays received quite a lot of comment and were widely performed in the commercial West End up until his death in the mid-1960s. The key play is the murder of Thomas Beckett in the cathedral, known as murder in the cathedral. Now, these plays are an attempt to widen the poet's vision. Eliot always believed that just to talk to a small number of cultural collaborators via small political journals and magazines was never enough, that you needed to transcend that, that the poet needed to be, have a social role. And playwriting, because of course they're verse dramas, is the social role of a playwright who is actually a poet. Notice that the sort of plays that Eliot wrote very different to the social commentary of something like Rattigan and contemporary, are decisively different to what follows. British theatre changed out of all recognition in the 1960s, when a whole generation of essentially culturally Marxist playwrights came up. Eliot, although the word in the cathedral is still performed, has become very unfashionable in the generation of Edward Bond and Trevor Griffiths and Arnold Wesker and Hare and Harold Brenton. These are the people who took over the theatre in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, particularly the state subsidised theatre which came out of the Arts Council and the big national corporate bodies that they were creating post-war, post-Festival of Britain, and which the Tories have never um, understood how they should deal with. It always amazes me that, just as an aside, which has little to do with the topic of this talk, when Margaret Thatcher was leading this country in what leftists would regard as an extreme right Tory direction, however you choose to define that, a play was put on at the National Theatre which consisted of her execution. <laughs> this was called the, um, the Unkindest Cut of All by Howard Brenton, with an all-female cast in which a Tory Harrigan, Thatcher lookalike, was guillotined on the stage of the National Theatre. And the Tories have never understood, because they're completely culturally witless, except in private life, where you have, you know, often highly nuanced and educated men of an Alan Clark time, although he was unusual in all sorts of ways, and a cultural gadfly at that. But there is a degree to which the Tories have never understood what the enemy is and who the enemy is. They've never understood how you engage in cultural struggle They've never understood the importance of culture. Only the left and the extreme right understand the importance of cultural struggle. The liberal centre has inherited the extreme left partiality for it. The reason that I talk about Eliot, talk about Pound, or talk about Yates in a future talk, for example, and his attitude towards Irish nationalism and lots of many other things, is to keep alive these figures of power these are figures of cultural power that should not be lost sight of. The arts are not an area of just heedless decadence and celebration of everything falling to pieces. 
they can be an area of restoration and renewal, both individually and collectively. People need the heroic in their own life, and considerable artistic achievements border upon the heroic at times, and other people can feed off that and feed the nature of their identity. Elliot wrote quite extensively about Greek tragedy. And Greek tragedy, of course, is the basis of Renaissance tragedy, and the basis of Shakespeare's art, and the basis of the other great Elizabethans. In the Elizabethan age, which was highly prized by Elliot, we created the greatest form of drama seen since the Greeks. Yet how many people out here know of it? We created this, England created it. In the hierarchy of poets and poets, playwrights who then existed, this was England's creation. We once, this is why the English are a proud group who are actually, in some respects, socially and psychologically awkward. The diffidence of the English interrelates with their love of theatre. Theatre is a form of play and a form of externalisation where you can be yourself and not be yourself. Every town once had a theatre. Theatre was our form. Of course, it's grounded in a sort of middle-class, middle lovey culture to a degree, but there's a degree to which it was our unique form. And unless you realise that people like Eliot, through his criticism, are keeping in an attenuated way these forms alive, you miss the point of the social organicism which he's preaching. Extreme conservatism in the arts is very unusual, because extreme conservatism is often associated with extreme stupidity. This cannot be the case with men like Eliot, who I would regard as a conservative. There are proto-fascistic elements to Eliot, but Eliot does not cross over a particular line. Eliot remains on the blue or the conservative side, culturally speaking. Now, in the four quartets for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize, Eliot draws out from the Christian tradition many associations which we need just briefly to have a look at. This is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday has come up instead. This is the first poem after the reconversion. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again, because I know that time is always time, and place is always an only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. Having to construct something upon which to rejoice. It's the belief that when there is no cultural future, you turn back. There's a film recently, a decade or so ago, by a French director in Hollywood. It's quite an unusual film where people have a dinner party and discuss the state of the West as they sit round in this dinner party. And one of them says, what can you do when you can't go forwards? What can you do when there's 
nothing to progress towards. Progressivism, the doctrines of the liberal left and the left generally, believe in progress. They believe that everything now is heading forwards towards greater and greater degrees of joy, liberty, equality and progress. Progressivism. What can you do if you can't progress any further? And one of the other characters parted to the dinner table and its discussions says you can go back. When you can't proceed any further, you go back. But you never return to what existed in the past. You return to ideas that you had about it which open up a new prospect for the future. That's the importance of the radicalism in radical right ideas, that you turn back towards a prospect of what existed that you half remember and you wish to go on from in a different way. Now, what's the point of reading people like Eliot now? The point, in my view, is to incarnate yourself in structures of sensibility which once existed in a more general way. The general decline in Western educational level, the general decline in sculpture of will in order to be what we are, has had a devastating effect on all of our people. Top of the social structure, middle of the social structure, bottom of the social structure. The more nakedly you look at the decline which has occurred, the more terrible the prospects for the West appear. We're living in what radical Christians, or Pentecostalist caste, call the end times. Now, I don't believe in the end times, but we are living in the end of a particular era of Western history. We must determine what future our people have. And the first thing that has to be done is mental. Our people are mentally asleep and partly mentally diseased and complacent to the point at which they're toppling over. They are so polite that they don't even really wish to survive in present incarnation. The point of people like Eliot in a metapolitical context, not in a purely cultural one, is that they stand out against the general rot and there are things about him still which are unassimilable, which cannot be assimilated. What liberalism does is it just ignores those unpleasant factors. When Anthony Julius wrote in T.S. Eliot's anti-Semitism and literary form, that Eliot's anti-Semitism was, was equivalent to his failure as a human being. Failure as a human being, notice. Failure to live up to certain uh, right, liberal standards. Failure to adopt a politically correct canon. How can somebody have those views given what allegedly happens in the middle of the 20th century, even if it's a retrospective coinage? Why did he never republish his particular book about the organic society in 1934 to 1935 under strange gods? Obviously, he wanted to preserve a post-war reputation for conservative assimilation and accessibility to the doctrines of the then establishment. But there is a degree to which what one was at a certain period and what one remains cannot be erased. The point of high culture is to give idealism to our people even if they don't subscribe to it. The point is always to live outside one's own cultural comfort zone. The point is always to try and strive for that which is higher and that which is above. I partly preach artistic concerns and considerations of what I believe to be a higher type because I think that they are a way to go 
for people who are totally blocked in relation to expressing their own identity. Lots of people today yearn for a clean and a new way in which to express their own identity. Why do you think that every arts course in every British university deconstructs its main cultural figures as a way of proceeding? They do it so that the danger of the prior essentialisms that work even within a modernist like Eliot will not be taken up. The irony is that uh, when Yockey committed suicide just before, he said that his enemies understood him better than his friends. And that is the view that, in a way, one should take from high culture. Many people on the right are not interested in high culture, let's face it. But there's a degree to which the, the enemy on the other side knows full well the power that it can have and the way it can transform lives, values, psychologies, purposefulness, and identities. That's why it takes it away from people. If it was of no importance, there wouldn't be a sting around some of the names about the people that I talk about. They would regard, be regarded as bohemian men with folly-laden attitudes, which are of no importance. No one can dismiss the political allegiance of W.B. Yeats, the metapolitical tangentialism of T.S. Eliot, the open espousal of forms of pre-revisionistic fascism by Wynton Lewis, and the open advocacy of fascistic politics, never mind metapolitics, by Ezra Pound. These are not things you can have a laugh about. These are not things that can be deconstructed out of existence. Because the point of those theories is you break it all down and then you reconstitute it again because it's still there. And if it's still there, it's still powerful. It's still residential. It can still be used by the other side. It can still be used by our side if we have the wit to do so. Now, Eliot had a stone erected to him in Westminster Abbey two years after his death, and therefore joins the Western tradition that stretches back to Shakespeare, stretches back to Chaucer. Poetry is heightened language. Poetry is language adopting and attempting to be musical, hence the fact it's often said to music. Poetry is close to religious incantation, closer than prose. Poetry hasn't died, although, <coughs> as an art form, it's been broken down and privatised to a degree that there are a few major poets left today because although there are thousands of people who write poetry, it's disseminated in a bitty, fractured and postmodern way. A few talents <coughs> built up in the post-war era like John Ashbery and so on. But T.S. Eliot is a bit of a grim giant, a bit of a sort of morbid, hierarchical, puritanical conservative fused with the high bohemian passion of a great artist, hence the prudery in his work, hence at times the prissiness in his work, hence at times the indirectness of statement in his work. But he's very much part and parcel of the sensibility particularly of the English people, born here, in Australasia, in America, or in Southern Africa. Wherever people of English and British descent are born, they will understand the diction of T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot is not important because he wrote a few poems that people consider to be anti-Semitic. T.S. Eliot is important because he metaphysically opens a, a way of assessing reality and proceeding. I'm not arguing that people convert back to Christianity. Most of us have lost. 
But what I am arguing for is that one has a sympathy for that particular trajectory and one understands why figures like Enoch Powell and C.S. Eliot adopted it. I don't think it's the answer for our people in the individual circumstances beyond the official acceptance or in the majority. But it is something that can be respected and it's something which should be valued as such. To close, I would like to read, shall we say, the hollow man. The hollow man. A penny for the old guy. We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece stored with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless, as wind in dry grass, or rat's feet over broken glass, in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without colour, paralysed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed, with direct eyes, to death's other kingdom, remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Part two. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream, in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There the eyes are sunlit on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing, more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, kraus, crow skin, cross staves, in a field, behaving as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meeting in the twilight kingdom. Part three. This is the dead land. This is the cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. Is it like this in death's other kingdom, waking alone, at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss, form prayers to broken stone. Part four. The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here. In this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdom. In this last meeting of places, we grope together and avoid speech, gathered on this beach of the tumid river, sightless, unless the eyes reappear, as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose, of death's twilight kingdom, the only hope of empty men. Part five. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. The introduction of nursery rhyme, of course. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. That's a very famous stanza, which is repeated. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence, essence, and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine ears, life is, for thine is, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. The Hollow Men, poem for the old guy from 1925. Notice how many of these phrases have entered the English language. This is the way the world ends. How many tens of thousands of people say, not with a bang but a whimper, and don't know where it comes from? That's, of course, what poetry does. It frees glottal stops. It freezes inarticulacy in people. You usually face it. A lot of people become amateur poets in war, or when they're faced with illness, or when they're faced with the death of a relative. 
because that is the moment when they have to confront many of the things that this society exists never to confront. So I ask that people have a look at T.S. Eliot as they have a look at Ezra Pound, as they have a look at Wyndham Lewis, as they have to have a look at W.B. Yeats. Joyce, who is associated with them, is in a different category, morally, artistically, and politically, never mind metapolitically. Next time, I shall talk about W.B. Yeats. Thank you very much. establishment that dominates academia can cope with the genius of, uh, 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 can cope with the challenge posed by the genius of people like Pound, Eliot, and the Japan, Mishima, is by detaching uh, language from, uh, from literature. In other words, uh, by de uh, de simultaneously denigrating the writer's I I I ideas whilst championing the literary brilliance of his work. And if so, this is not ultimately mean the destruction of literature, because literature is nothing but a vehicle for the communication of the writer's ideas. Yes, um, in, in contemporary academic discourse, there's a theory which you must know very well called post-structuralism, mm. which uh, has another name called deconstruction. And this is an idea based upon the death of the author. Foucault and, the, and Derrida and the others mm. talk about the death of the author. This is the idea that nothing exists but the text. No one produced this. Indeed, um, Derrida has a, no one conscious of the fact of the production of this produced this, let's put it that way. Um, Derrida in particular talks about text emerging from the sort of cloaclear of language, text emerging uh, from nothing at all, text without biographical imprimatur. This is an attempt to sever all biographical and all subjective lived experience from the nature of the writer's life. That's paradoxical because contemporary liberalism faces several different ways. On the one hand, you have the demonization of people like Eliot, as attempted by Julius and his kindred. But on the other hand, you have denigration of the prospect of authorship itself. Because it's universally destructive. So it's universally destructive. Um, but both can't entirely coexist with each other because even if you denigrate a man's biography, you are paying testament to the fact that he existed as a man. So there's a paradox there. <coughs> there's an interesting, for those who are interested, there's a, a significant story about deconstruction. This deconstruction had an enormous vogue in the Western cultural establishment for 20 to 30 years. It went virtually unchallenged from about 1975 to 2000. And then an issue of revisionism came up which involved Paul de Man. Paul de Man was Belgian and was head of the linguistic stroke literature program at Yale University, or constituent college part of Yale University, certainly the English public part. And Paul de Man had written collaborationist articles during the Second World War. In fact, he'd written for the Rexist movement's journal of the underground. The articles were quite tame or quite moderate. They were 
for those interested in these things, they would be the equivalent of rather mild articles in something like Scorpion of yesteryear. But the man had a crisis after the war, left Belgium, reinvented himself, and went to live in the United States. De Man's most famous book is called Blindness and Insight, in which he declares no one is historically responsible for what they do in history. In other words, no one has any personal investment in history or is not a particular actor. Everything is fluid and indeterminate. And what he's escaping from, of course, is his own past. What he's escaping from I mean, is his own Rexist articles. And there's a famous moment when this is revealed, because it's a scandal, of course, which is going to come up, isn't it? And eventually, somebody deconstructs Paul Demand's past and discovers the Rexist material. And this creates convulsions in post-structuralism as movement. They have a whole conference at a summer school at the University of Alabama in the deep south of the United States to discuss how they're going to deal with the fact that this man who's the head of deconstruction in the Western Academy in the United States, wrote for a Rexist journal. You have to understand, this is, this is essentially discovering that the present Pope, who was, of course, head of the inquisitorial wing of the Catholic Church for a period and head of doctrine, actually has a morality or a religiosity closer to Montague Summers or Alistair Crowley, which is essentially discovering the worst of the worst about somebody. You have to understand, in these narrow post-structuralist confines, to write for the Rexist journal is worse than being a paedophile. It's a lot, it's a lot worse. And Terry Eagleton, who's a Marxist at Oxford University, was head of English for a while at Oxford University, noticed the Western Academy has been given over to these people. You know, Eagleton's head of... Uh, head of English at Oxford, and is a mild Marxist deconstructionist. And he wrote an article in the Times Literary Supplement about Paul the Man's difficulties, in which he said, it's like a grenade or an incendiary device thrown into the centre of an academic conference. Because what they're saying is, deconstruct that old man, deconstruct <laughs> that, writing for the Rexists. You know, because it's what it means, even though they deny meaning, it's what it means. It's not that he wrote for one right-wing group as against another. It's the fact that everything they exist to oppose was once endorsed by this man because the right represents essentialism. And that side lost as well. And that side lost as oh. well. And he's got to reinvent his career in order to survive as an academic in the United States. If you ever do some of these courses at the more progressive universities, there's a phrase that's used. And that is, essentialism opens the door to Auschwitz. That's the phrase which is used. And so, you understand that things which are quite abstract and quite abstruse are there at the heart of the Western Academy. What are they saying by that remark? Just as Adorno, who is the leading figure in the Frankfurt School, once said, after Auschwitz, no more poetry. There should be no more poetry after Auschwitz because the pain of human life is such that it came down to the earth and touched it as a sunspot dwelling like an inferno upon the surface of the planet, which is sort of bad poetry, if you like. But there is a degree to which there should be no poetry after Auschwitz. And the way that you make sure that there won't be any is to deny essentialism. 
which is the basis of the religious urge and the basis of an urge towards identity. Any more questions? What at the back, Tony? Yeah, well, actually, if this is a question that's occurred to me by your last statement. There's a noble poetry after Auschwitz. Uh, then I was looking at my book here, Jewish run gulags in the Soviet Union. So, what do these clever uh, academics have to say about uh, the gulags and the Jews who ran these camps, which was occupied by the Soviet Union? Well, the Jews were part of the Soviet Union, but they were part of the Soviet Union during the Soviet Union. The Frankfurt School, Western Marxism in the post-Second World War period, of course, liked to pretend that it was as anti-Soviet as it was anti-anything else. Herbert Marcuse, who was world famous for his book One Dimensional Man in the 1960s, and for his Freudian take on Marxist sexology in Eros and Civilization, he wrote a book called Soviet Marxism. It's a very thin book, but it's an attempt to say that the Soviet Union is not our option not our mask. Indeed, of course, Adorno died as a result of a happening at a Western German, West German there, university, when some yippies, who were politicized hippies of that era, stormed the stage at one of his meetings and embraced him and kissed him and attempted to put flowers on him. This was the sort of thing people did in the late 1960s. And Adorno, like a lot of these people, actually rather stiff slightly conservative man who very much wanted to keep the teacher, lecturer, student no. dichotomy going, was offended and slightly mortally put out by this, suffered a heart attack and died later. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate deconstruction. <laughs> Another thing which is interesting is that a lot of a lot, although slightly getting off your question, a lot of these figures were blamed. Certainly the Frankfurt School people were blamed by the centre-right media, the sort of Christian democratic media in West Germany for the Baden-Meinhof phenomenon. Even though you could argue their theory was quite different to the Baden-Meinhof people. The Baden-Meinhof people were eventually trained by the Stasi, of course, to cause as much havoc inside Western Germany and West Germany's new NATO alliance as possible. So, they would say that they were against the Soviet model, which means that they are opposed to Stalinism per se. But of course, every denunciation of Stalinism is this big, and every denunciation of things well to the right of Stalinism is this big. So you can see that their consciousness about what was called real existing socialism, remember that real existing socialism, was quite sort of nuanced. The answer is they don't have much to say about that, and they would have find very offensive the way in which you put that question. Yeah. <laughs> Introducing an ethnic element into it when that had nothing to do with it. Aren't you aware that Stalin was anti-Semitic, and that many Jews were purged, and they were only put to do those dirty jobs so that they could be purged later? Aren't you aware of the dialecticism involved in that? The cleverness of this closet Russian nationalism, which led to support for the Arab bloc? even in the way in which you form that question, there are insidious... <laughs> 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 Just a point, what you're saying is the whole academic uh, infrastructure is inspired by Jewish thinking. <laughs> it's inspired by, well, it's inspired by the idea that you tear down in order to create a new. 
It is it's all of this thinking, the Frankfurt School is unique because they were all of a certain ethnicity. Um, and that's not true of quite a lot of theoretical Marxism. So in some ways, the Frankfurt is a very pure group. The key Frankfurt School text is the Dialectic of Enlightenment by Horkheimer and Adorno, which is, which is an attack. It's all about the Second World War, of course, but it's an attack on the Enlightenment. Because don't forget, we're living in the Enlightenment. Yes. When you go out there, this society is based upon Enlightenment yes. precepts. Yeah. And yet they're against the Enlightenment because they're so far to the left that the Enlightenment's not left-wing enough. It's just a callow liberalism. Of they want the burning sun. They don't want a little sort of patch of sunlight. Um, the Enlightenment, in a complicated way, because it preaches the domination of nature by man, unloosed, unleashed fascism as a return, radical return to nature. That's Adorno's theory about what fascism was. Um, well, my theory is that fascism is the reaction to the crisis in Western culture, with the whole as a consequence of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. Yes, I agree with you. Are we talking about fascism or Nazism? Well, look, fascism has many variants. Any more questions? Okay. One, one last question for Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, you spoke of Eliot making this philosophic, this metaphysical choice of moving away from his Unitarian roots towards high Anglicanism. And that brought us almost full circle to, to, to hearing about uh, Joe Chamberlain's Unitarian roots earlier today. Uh, Chamberlain, obviously being of an earlier generation, never lived long enough to have to make such a metaphysical choice, even had he been inclined to do so. But do you see uh, that move away from the essence of uh, distilled liberalism, if you like, the, 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 the Unitarianism, the, 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 the teleology of, of science and liberal progress making a better society? Do you see the rejection of that as being at the heart, if you see that as, as being at the heart of, of, of Eliot, do you think that there is any such distillation of 20th century postmodernism or 20th century liberalism, the, the 20th century ideology we all live under, uh, that, that could be codified in quite such a way as a metaphysical choice? And if so, do you see anyone moving as, as, as we... Uh, see the collapse of the 20th century's dreams, just as the, the, the Unitarian liberal dreams of the 19th century collapsed, do you see such a choice being made in the early 20th, 21st century by anybody in our own uh, intellectual elite? That's a very difficult question, actually. Um, <coughs> because until the middle of the 20th century, liberalism was still wrapped up with any religious ideas. Thomas Tavsinik, in his book, Homo Americanus, deals with the fact that why is a certain cultural group so dominant in the United States? It's because of Protestantism and the ease with which you can move within radical Protestant thinking, which is only at times a millimetre away from the ideas of a particular group. Not just in the useful idiot sense, but also the believing sense. The, the, the main force in the United States is Christian Zionism without any fact. The fact that they are passive rather than active is outshadowed by their money and by their numbers. So the point about Unitarianism is that it's still a religious viewpoint. 
You know, in Oxford University, there's a Unitarian College, Manchester College, which has this beautiful stained glass window. And it's still a religious institution, even though it's on the edge of non-religiosity. We now have liberalism without any essentialism at all. We now have a sort of liberalism without any religious props at all. Iris Murdoch, who is a philosopher as well as a novelist, said that we should get rid of Christianity, she was a Quaker by birth, and keep the ethics. And that's what liberalism has done, it's kept the ethical postulation of late humanized humanist Christianity. This so, is Matthew Arnold's idea, that this the Anglican Church should be preserved, not as a metaphysical, but as an ethical institution. Yes. So there's nobody now in the Western Academy that believes in a religious doctrine of liberalism. I mean, political correctness and the desire to enforce it is almost the negative side of not having a religious liberalism. Because you have to go around denying what people say, what they think, what they think in their own hearts, what they write in their own diary or on their own blogs. You have to be concerned about all that trivia in a way. You have to be bothered about that because there is no overarching metaphysical certainty. That's why you have to be so prissy and so puritanical. This is the strange freedom of the most libertarian sort is preached everywhere. But if anyone says the slightest remark, people are in a with manic, with comic rage. So in a way, that I would argue that the crystallization of a non-religious liberalism is political correctness. Well, that, that I think leads me on to Mark and Tour de Force from Jonathan. Mm. Uh, and a fascinating. <laughs> fascinating speech. Troy, can you give us the date of the next meeting? Is that still going to be the at the moment? Yes, mid October. Mid October. Uh, we'll all agree the 34th meeting has been a great success, and I hope to see as many of you as possible at the 35th in mid October then. Yes, sir.